Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Last month, the House of Representatives passed a bill called the Equality Act. And recently, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the Equality Act. The bill adds sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes to our civil rights law. And while Catholics certainly oppose unjust discrimination, this bill goes way beyond that goal. The bishops of the United States are deeply concerned about this bill, as it would codify gender ideology into federal law, strip religious institutions of their freedom to serve with integrity, and possibly even sneak in an abortion mandate. So to discuss these issues with the Equality Act, we are joined by some of our colleagues here at the USCCB, Robert Vega and Lauren McCormick. Robert is policy analyst for the Subcommittee on the Promotion and Defense of Marriage, Lauren is Executive Director of Government Relations. Colleagues, it has been a busy couple of weeks, so I'm really glad that y'all were able to take time to join the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. So first of all, um, just the basics. What does the Equality Act do? Well, Aaron, I think you um, the nail on the head already in a lot of of respects, but the Equality Act is a piece of legislation, relatively short, only about 27, 30 pages, um, that amends the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, for the most part, uh, also amends the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and some other provisions in federal law. And what it does is it takes these non-discrimination laws that prohibit discrimination on various bases in different contexts of of life and business, and adds the term sex where it's not listed already, and redefines sex, both in those places and where it is listed already, to include things like sexual orientation, gender identity, and uh, also several provisions, uh, definitional provisions related to pregnancy. And If that were to prohibit people from being unjustly discriminated against in the workplace and in stores and restaurants, hospitals, what have you, purely because, you know, they're pregnant or they self-identify as LGBT, uh, then I think we would be having uh, perhaps a very different conversation. But what the Equality Act does with its language and how that is used by advocates and also likely to be used by agencies and courts is to essentially impose the belief of gender divorced from sex um, on all Americans in so many facets of life and to kind of supersede uh, sex as well. You know, under existing uh, sex non-discrimination law, for example, you can't fire someone for being a male or female, but you're still traditionally allowed to have, for example, um, separate restrooms, dormitories, sports teams, et cetera. Programming for, you know, people in crisis situations like mothers, you know, in crisis situations, shelters. But those needs and rights that serve women and men uh, would be essentially overridden by gender identity and the need to run things in accord with gender identity under the Equality Act. And we would, there's no exemptions for religious organizations. Um, 
and certainly we could see it affecting people's speech as well. You know, what kind of things are deemed, you know, harassment or not. And on top of all that, as you mentioned, it possibly includes an abortion mandate uh, through its terms related to pregnancy and the definition of sex without any sort of abortion neutralizing language to guard against that. Uh, there's reason to believe that it could impose on employers the need to cover abortion and impose on hospitals and physicians the need to uh, perform abortions. Well, I wonder um, if you could elaborate on that part a little bit, um, and then Lauren, feel free to jump in anytime um, about this, uh, the abortion part of it, because I think that in the hearing at the Senate, um, it was brought up, you know, abortion isn't that that that's not actually in the in the text. I I can see this being the sort of thing where skeptics of the bishops um, and and those who are sympathetic to to our view on this, those um, skeptics would are going to be like, you guys are always so afraid. You see abortion lurking in every corner, or you're and you always just bring this up to try to to try to. It's kind of a fear mongering type of tactic. Can you say a little bit more about like where we see this and and why there's cause for concern in the Equality Act? Proponents of the Equality Act are right that the word abortion does not appear in the bill. And we've learned from experience, though, that that often doesn't need to be the case. Uh, Beneficiaries of government funding, courts, government agencies have a long history of taking seemingly neutral language about health and women's opportunities and pregnancy and reproduction and turning them into abortion related concepts or rules or programs. And so what we see in the Equality Act is that the term sex in section nine of the bill among its new definitions is pregnancy, childbirth or related medical conditions And then there's also a rule that says pregnancy, childbirth, or a related medical condition shall not receive less favorable treatment than other physical conditions. Again, on its face, it may not seem that bad, but what it's getting at is that you cannot treat abortion any differently than you would treat anything else, such that it would still need to be covered in a health plan or it would still need to be provided by a healthcare entity, be it an individual who has conscientious objections or you know, a whole Catholic hospital, for example, um, you know, so long as they have capacities and competencies to do so. And we've seen historically in you know, other legislation that this sort of language ha- it can be twisted to produce abortion mandates. And we've seen the need for clarification to the contrary. So the Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act, or I think Pregnancy Discrimination Act, (laughs) sorry, already provides protection for pregnant women in, you know, the workplace context, for example, but it's, but it was written with the knowledge uh, after some courts had already interpreted it related law about sexual discrimination wrongly, that it needed an abortion neutralizing component, which the Equality Act lacks. And on one hand, a lot of proponents of the Equality Act do say it doesn't pose abortion threats. But on the other hand, there are 
several abortion activist and advocate organizations that endorsed the Equality Act because of their understanding of what this would do. You know, based on this in decades-old interpretation that limits on sex discrimination, unless you say otherwise, will bring in, through some reasoning, <laughs> abortion Im- implications. So, Robert, this is interesting to me. Like, it, it's pretty complicated, to be honest, because I'm trying to figure out, is the Equality Act, which is such a misnomer, right, is, it, is there something in it that, that the bishops would say, like, is, is needed? Like, it, it seems to me that if there already is protections for discrimination against pregnant women in the workplace, discrimination against race, sex, like, if these are already protections in law, then is the Equality Act needed at all? Is there anything in it that we would say, oh yes, this is this is a good point. This is a fix that's needed. Or is all of it led possibly behind the scenes by activists? You know, the bishops uh, are strongly and have been and will be against unjust discrimination. And certainly people, whether because pregnant or because they identify as LGBT, have been discriminated against at times in terrible ways that should, you know, that should not happen. I think what we're seeing in practice, though, is fortunately the examples of such such discrimination are really not as systemic or prevalent as those that in the past have warranted civil rights legislation, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, particularly with respect to race or or also uh, with sex. And so I think one does have to ask the question to what extent, you know, this bill is really designed to go so much further and produce a, for us, a lot of harms, you know, for proponents to instill their, their, you know, worldview in, you know, the rest of, you know, the rest of society through government mandate and federal signaling. Well, I want to jump in, though, on that, because, I mean, just to ask about, like, what some of this means, and it would mean in a concrete kind of way. You know, one of the things that, besides that the name is is an attractive name, Equality Act, I mean, one of the advantages I think supporters of the Equality Act have is, and again, you heard this at the the Senate hearing, there's a lot of focus on housing and employment. And I think almost everybody's gonna gonna say everybody should be able to get have access to housing and be able to get a job. You know, I mean that that there's something intuitive about that. There's an if you focus on that part of it, you know, you're obviously at an advantage in that respect. And and those are concrete things. Like you can imagine somebody being denied access to housing uh, and thinking, well, that's just not fair. That doesn't seem right. You know. What are the kinds of scenarios, like if the Equality Act were to pass in the Senate and to be signed um, into law, like what are the sorts of things that that you can envision happening that would be of concern, you know, that where you're saying like it it's it's making it, it's imposing a worldview on us, what would that actually then look like? Like how would how would it affect in a concrete way? people who, who would have reason to be concerned about this? Well, one example would be the options that are available in healthcare. There are an increasing number of persons, particularly young people, who are experiencing 
gender dysphoria, uh, experiencing symptoms and uh, like gender dysphoria. And what this bill would most likely do would say that there is no longer an option to try to have, you know, professional licensed counselors, for example, be able to talk with people, including young people, to first see if, you know, they may be able to grow in acceptance of their God-given body and that the only way that they can be healthy and that the only legitimate form of addressing their experience is transition to the opposite gender, both socially and ultimately medically. And then when it comes to the physicians on the other end, they will have no ability to exercise their uh, best professional judgment with respect to whether the best course of action for a given patient is medical transition or not. They will be you know, compelled under threat of liability under this law to provide those life-altering procedures, be they puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or ultimately surgery. Other prominent examples are where women and men have traditionally been able to keep separate spaces or separate programming, such as in homeless shelters where you're dealing with vulnerable, sometimes traumatized populations. And in sports, um, particularly stu you know, student athletics, but also you know, recreational and otherwise, where you know, distinctions between the sexes are, are relevant and this would override that such that anyone who identifies as the opposite sex may take part in you know, a specific uh, program or be admitted to a specific facility on that you know, same basis as the sex that is opposite themselves. And everyone else will have to abide by that. Everyone else will have to accept that and embrace that. And if you have an you know, if you have an objection, if you have, uh, if you cannot, you know, accept that in your, in your space, in your speech, in your actions, then, then you become the, per, you become the one who's the object of targeting under this legislation. You, you know, you become essentially the equivalent of a, of a racist bigot, <laughs> uh, you know, seeing as this, you know, all falls under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, or much of it does anyway. And so you're really ha being driven to have your views changed or marginalized. To me, when I you know, first started learning about this, one of the things that I have found the most, maybe the most striking is the way that this, the expansion of public accommodations and the, the possibility that that even houses of worship could be, you know, could be touched by this. And again, this was something that came up um, a lot in the hearing uh, that one of the witnesses kept saying that, you know, this isn't going to affect religious liberty. This doesn't touch religion. Of course, one of our concerns is that this, as I mentioned, the expansion of pub public accommodations, which I'm going to ask y'all to, to um, say what that means, um, and then also that it exempts itself from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so I wonder, could you just say then what that what that means? Like, what how do, what does the Religious Freedom Restoration Act carve out mean? And then what is this? My my understanding of this is like by expanding public accommodations, 
if a house of worship in any way, so like if a church, you know, hosts some kind of festival that's open to the public, you know, I think about how some Orthodox churches often will have like Greek festivals or things like that, like that they now are like serving the public in some way, even though no one, none of us, it seems counterintuitive to say like, well, sub, does the church, does that church stop becoming a church? But in a way they would be treated as now coming under this law. If there's, if they're doing something that serves the public in that way, if they rent out their space, I think that seems crazy to a would seem wild to a lot of to just the average American if they understood that that's what this was doing. So I wonder if you could talk about that. What is that expansion of public accommodations and then this Religious Freedom Restoration Act carve out? Sure. And and you're absolutely right. Um, so public accommodations was a you know phrase used in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that covered a relatively small range of places like gas stations, theaters, hotels, and restaurants to prohibit uh, discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, and religion there. And, but what the Equality Act would do would be to expand the coverage of that to any place of, quote, public gathering or, quote, public display and also any establishment that provides a good service or program. And that's it. So a service or program could, or a place of public gathering could cover almost just about everything in daily public life. Uh, every consumer charitable you know, place or, or service. And so when it comes to houses of worship, there is you know, potentially an argument that their core worship functions in their innermost sanctuaries are not fully open to the public in a way that might make them a place of public accommodation. Even that's potentially up for debate. And and some you know organizations are very concerned about that and we ought to you know keep an eye out for, for that. But as much more likely as soon as that church or synagogue or temple or mosque opens its doors to the broader community, either for some sort of community recreational event, like you mentioned, a you know, Greek festival, uh, or for example, many parish halls open their doors for hospitality you know, to the homeless and offer them a cup of coffee in the morning or, or sandwich, etc. Well, but I'm even thinking of just daily mass. I mean, churches typically, anybody who walks through the door, you know, my parish, is people or anybody is welcome to come specific hours, uh, most hours during the day to come into the church and pray. Robert, would would this expansion of public accommodation as written in the Equality Act apply to that as well? It could. There, you know, there are arguments to be made uh, both ways to be sure. I think you actually just got me thinking on kind of a new um, angle or flavor of this, which may be what about churches that are in a way, unfortunately, from a, for perhaps from our perspective, that are more tourist sites than uh, active places of worship now. Uh, some of the great cathedrals in major cities that have, you know, big lines of tourists going in for, you know, for those purposes, is their entire sanctuary a place of public accommodation? Well, and one other thing that I, like, when I was listening to the, the hearing, 
and the, and the, um, one of the witnesses for the supporting the Equality Act was like, well, if you're serving the public in some way, um, like if you're selling something, I think he mentioned as an example. And I was like, well, a lot of Catholic churches, you know, sell devotional items in the church or, or like they have a shop right next to the church because of where we live or, and where I work, I immediately thought of like the national shrine or the Franciscan monastery. So the, and, and those are like, like those bookstores and gift shops are, are also still like, it's all one organization, you know, I mean, you can't really easily separate the, the gift shop from the rest of the church. You know, I mean, they're selling devotional candles and stuff like that. So anyway, so then I thought like, well, does that mean that that place becomes, and you saying that like as a tourist site, does that make it, does that mean now it comes under this, you know, it would come under this law? I just think that that seems so, it just seems so counterintuitive to how we think about these things. Yeah. And, and I want to be clear too, though, it's not that we want to be cut off from the world or that we want religious spaces to have, you know, some ability to turn people away or, you know, kick someone out by any means. It's a matter of not being forced to treat people in ways contrary to the understanding of, a, of an organization or facilities faith uh, when, you know, they're in those facilities. So be it restrooms or use of, you know, preferred pronouns, but also uh, think of uh, same-sex civil wedding ceremonies. There are some church-affiliated properties that are rented as halls to the broader community and sometimes do host civil weddings if they are viewed to not be in um, direct outward contrast to core Christian principles. But under the Equality Act, they would have to, you know, for example, host a you know same-sex civil uh, civil wedding, or you know, the church having the Greek festival, for example, might, if asked for permission, might have to host, um, you know, a, a a pride festival, and and if that differs from what that you know church would want to do, they really wouldn't have any recourse. They would be you know mandated to, you know, rent to that organization, and the lack of recourse is made all the worse, as you mentioned earlier, by the self-carve-out that the bill has from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Aaron, I'm glad you brought up both of these uh, concerns that we have with the bill, the public accommodations, and then the Religious Freedom Restoration Act carve-out. And I think just going back a little bit, so for many decades in Congress, there has been a push for uh, the law to change to add sexual orientation and then later gender identity to the Civil Rights Act. And where that came from was the stories of of individuals, including those who we saw in the House Judiciary hearing a few years ago, who told their story about, I identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and I've faced discrimination, whether it be in the workplace or in healthcare facilities, and and I want the law to protect me. So that, that's been the genesis of the conversation, and that 
the the core belief that that every person should be free from unjust discrimination, including individuals who identify as LGBT. We agree with that. And Catholics, we have a responsibility to reach out to the marginalized and promote the common good of everyone to make sure that everyone has access to the basic goods that they need to live and thrive. And so the, the sponsors of the bill heard these stories and then they wrote this bill, the Equality Act, to address what they, the problem that these individuals brought forward. But the sponsors just went way too far in trying to address the, the problems that they heard from the stories of individuals who had faced discrimination. And the examples that you bring up, public accommodation, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, are just really great examples of the, the overbroad consequences that really lead to our opposition, the Bishop's opposition. The fact that it's unclear how a church or how a Knights of Columbus Hall or a soup kitchen in the basement of a church, what it's, the fact that it's unclear what their rights would be or how they would be treated under this proposed bill is, is very alarming. And it, just thinking about the church at large, we, we are proud that we serve everyone and um, do not turn anyone away who needs help or needs a hot meal and that's that's really something we're proud of as as Catholics, um, but it gets it gets more difficult when the government is saying that you have to do this and that there that person has an affirmative right to have a gender transition surgery or an abortion if if this bill is considered to be an abortion mandate in the courts and we're saying red light no this is this is not acceptable. This is not, this does not advance the common good of everyone in our society. This does not ultimately help our marginalized brothers and sisters because it's going to lead to more discrimination against other Americans. It does not, it's not a bill that respects the differences of everyone as we're trying to live together in society and respect our different beliefs about things like marriage and sexuality and the truth about biology. And then on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, so what the bill does is say that if a religious organization or religious person has a conflict under the the law, how it's implemented with the affirmative rights and the protections that are afforded to sexual orientation and gender identity, that that person can't go to court and the court can't help resolve the conflict between the government and the religious individual about how the conflict should be resolved in the given situation, whether it's related to federal funding or the public accommodations issue, it takes away the ability of a court to hear both sides and for the court to make a decision there. And and that's under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So the Equality Act says, no religious people, you don't have that ability to go to court and have that balancing test anymore. Our side is just going to win on these conflicts as they come up. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, this is a bipartisan bill that was signed into law by President Bill Clinton in 1993 with virtually unanimous support in Congress. Very little opposition. I can count on one hand the members that voted against it. And 
what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act did was say that all federal laws have to abide by this additional protection for religious freedom for religious people, unless the law specifically says this law doesn't apply. And that's what the Equality Act would do for the first time is say the Religious Freedom Restoration Act doesn't apply to this. So we're really alarmed by that. And another thing that we haven't touched on yet that I want to talk about is just the the importance of our faith not being private. And, And really, as Catholics, we are called to bring our faith, the light of truth, out to the whole world and to share that with others and to make it action in the form of our service to others and care for others, including the marginalized, especially the marginalized. So it's, it's really problematic that, that we would face that discrimination under the bill because of the way that it's been written by the sponsors and that we would, we would be told, nope, you're just wrong. And you need to really limit your activities to only worship only like inside the church types of things. And that's just not, that's not what our faith is. And we want to be able to live that freely. And and so I'm just really glad that you've, you've raised these, these two examples as, as examples of the overbroad nature of the bill. Lauren, so many great points. Thank you. And I'm curious if we are uh, partnering with any non-Christian uh, faiths or just just other faiths on our efforts to raise these um, alarms about the Equality Act? We are. There are a number of other religious organizations that are greatly concerned by the impacts of the Equality Act. Lutherans, evangelicals, Baptists, Jewish groups who are also concerned by the over just the really harmful consequences of the bill and are making those concerns known. And I, I think one of the things that, that we're trying to do through our advocacy at USCCB is, is really inform members of Congress about these concerns. And it's possible that some or many of them are not aware of, of how this could be interpreted in the courts of of how concerned we are about the impact that this would have on the service that the church is actively providing. Things like students who benefit from the low, the national school lunch program in our Catholic schools, students who wanna take their Pell Grants to Catholic universities. The Equality Act would have an impact on all of these things. And we, we wanna make sure that the members of Congress who are debating this bill as this bill is coming up in the Senate really understand the, the potential of negative consequences of the bill so that they can address them. And at the same time, make sure that they hear what we've talked about already, meaning the importance of making sure that everyone is respected and, and is treated with dignity and has access to those basic goods and services that they're due as someone who is made in the image of God. Well, Laura, you, you bring up the issue of our advocacy and that sort of thing. Um, you know, what are those conversations like, or do we expect this to pass? Where are things with the Equality Act? I mean, it's it's passed the House, so that's that. Um, but in the Senate, I mean, do we expect this to go forward? What what are your expectations here? The bill is going to go forward in the Senate, and 
we don't know exactly when that will happen. It, it could be soon. In the next couple of weeks, Congress is going to be going on their Easter Passover recess the next few weeks, but they'll be back in April. And President Biden has said that this is a priority for his first 100 days. So I think sooner rather than later on this, which is why we've we've really been talking a lot about this bill, trying to educate Catholics about how this could impact our religious freedoms and services that our churches provide, our social ministries provide throughout the country to try to make sure that the members of Congress debating this are aware of those grave consequences that we've, we've highlighted. And um, one thing that was really cool, we actually recently partnered with a group of several dioceses to do a national live webinar on the Equality Act. And it takes an hour to really walk through more specifically what, what the harms of the Equality Act are and, and how people can get engaged. So that is something that happened recently that I encourage people to check out for further just information. We, we have a, a webpage that we've dedicated to the Equality Act at USCCB. It's usccb.org forward slash equality hyphen act. And on that page, there are a number of resources and there's also an action alert. So that's an easy place where you can go and it's a pre-written message. You just type in your name and address and it'll send a message to your senators. Really the target, um, target audience right now is senators because senators are gonna be voting on this in the next few weeks. So we would really encourage people to go to that, that action alert and the Equality Act page to learn more. I think that that's probably a good place to end any final words before we before we close out. Just thank you very much for having us uh, this morning. Yeah, well, thank you. I think it's very helpful. Thank you so much for informing us about um, what's happening. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Thank you.